we could, we could destroy the habitability of Earth many times over. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Welcome to part two of FDR. If you have not already listened to part one, uh, there's a hint in the title that you're going to miss some things if you don't go back. So please listen to part one before you listen to part two. Sure. These also probably could be standalone to some degree, right? Yeah. I mean, it's half of the dude's life. Yeah. Um, We wrapped up the first shitty half. Yes. The quick recap. Trust fun, douchebag baby. Yes. Right? Yes. Philanderer. I was actually going to say trust fund baby because he grew, like, had a trust fund as a baby and then became a douchebag later. So I, trust fund baby the, douchebag grown up? The grown up feels a little redundant at, okay. that, at that point. <laughs> Most douchebags are grown ups, although I will say I've met some really shitty kids in my life too. Fair enough. So we made it through the first half of his life in, in episode or part one. Yes. And that brings us up to what I understand to be the worst half. Yes. He was born to generational wealth that was originated from profiting off the slave trade, uh, calculated and married his cousin after she became the niece of the president and he had like political ambitions. Um, He cheated on her a bunch. She was also uh, didn't enjoy having sex with him, had a bunch of relationships with both men and women outside of the marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, But really, it was about his political ambition and kind of like their very calculated, you know, approach to get there uh, and become president. They had an understanding, and that brings us to part two. Yes. So the year is 1933, and Roosevelt is elected president. So he's 51 at this point, 1882, right? Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, 1882, because his dad was born in 28. We did some fast math. Okay, So 1882 okay. to what year? 19, doesn't matter. He's yes. older. Yes, to 1933. The Great Depression had started with the crash in Mm -hmm. 29, Mm -hmm. and he was governor of New York at the time, had started a bunch of programs that were very popular, realized that they were much more popular than any of the Republican programs that were going on nationally, and campaigns basically to take his approach to, you know, social programs and a safety net to the world, to to the rest of the country. Sure. And is elected. So in 1933, he walks in. The Depression is the worst in history for the United States. Mm-hmm. There's 25% unemployment. Oh, my. Yeah. Farmers are going bankrupt, which is a massive part of the economy and population, much bigger than today in terms of number of people working in it. Prices had fallen by 60%. So today, like in the news, we're talking a lot about inflation, but this is like massive deflation, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of a overheated economy. Like nobody will buy your stuff. Too much supply, too little demand. Exactly. Manufacturing had fallen by over 50%. Ooh. Two million people were homeless. Oh, no. Yeah, so when you think about like the housing crisis of 2008, right? Lots of people lost their homes. But this is two million people, which is a much higher percentage in per- like percentage terms than the population today. Mm-hmm. So by the evening he's inaugurated, 32 of the 48 states had closed their banks. Yikes. Yeah, there would be four waves of bank runs. Uh, basically, like half of the nation's banks disappear. In a bank run, just for folks who don't know. Yeah. So actually, I want to talk about this for a second. Oh, okay. Great. Because the stock market crashes. Because I might be one of those folks. <laughs> about bank run, <laughs> yes. Um, so the stock market crashes, and stocks are super inflated like they are today. We mm-hmm. may very well be in for another stock market crash based on how overinflated prices are in the stock market. But stock market crashes, that doesn't immediately have an effect on banks. Okay. But what happened is a lot of people's wealth is in there, right? And all of a sudden, these things that they've been pouring their money into are worthless. Mm-hmm. And so people are spooked, and they want to know that their cash is safe. Now, the thing that I'm just going to like take a second to explain is called the fractional reserve banking system. I promise fractional reserve banking is much more wild and interesting than the <laughs> name implies. Okay, so as a quick example... Uh, let's say you and I move to this like tiny desert town and there's a bank there 
that has no money right now. It's brand new. Okay, so it's a building. It's just a building. With some cash registers. Sure. Why not? Okay. And let's say I have $100 and you've got nothing. Sounds right. Okay. So I go and I put $100 in this bank. Okay. Right now, there's only $100 in this entire town. Yikes. Right? Uh-huh. Let's say you're like the, uh, this town, what it really needs is a kiosk to buy crystals. Uh, it probably would. Right. It sounds like they need to manifest some wealth. First order of business. <laughs> so you go to the bank uh-huh. and you're like, I would like a loan to order my crystal, crystal kiosk. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, here's a $100 loan. Sign this paperwork. Whoa, they're just giving out all your money like that? Yep. They loan it to you. Okay. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to order this stuff online. Uh, so, <laughs> so you put the money back in the bank temporarily, right? Sure. I have a bank balance. If I check my little app, it says I have $100 in the bank. Uh-huh. It says you have $100 in the bank. It does. We have invented $100 out of thin air. Actually, it's how money works, but yeah. Right? <laughs> so, and, and to be clear, this is different than the inventing money out of thin air that like the Federal Reserve does that totally. people are always talking about. Totally. Where they're yeah. like, quote unquote, printing money. Right. We're perceiving $100. We're each perceiving we have $100. Yes. This is not like a government institution that has like created this money. It's like a, a little neighborhood bank that has nobody around, right? Uh-huh. But just the fact that we both can say we both have $100 in our bank accounts. Sure. If we go and we're both like, hey, I'd like to withdraw my $100 on the same day. It's going to be a problem. It will not be there. <laughs> yeah. It does not exist. Um, now, theoretically, the thing that like makes this possible mm-hmm. is that the bank has a piece of paper that says Audrey owes us $100. That sure. IOU is theoretically like the second half of this value that they've created. Right. And they, in a pinch, they could go and like sell that to somebody and get the extra hundred bucks. Got it. Ideally. Um, but we're simplifying here because one, that IOU is probably not worth exactly a hundred bucks. They wouldn't lend out the whole hundred dollars that they had. There's, you know, this is a simplified example. But what, mm-hmm. it, what it tells you is this is exactly how JP Morgan Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo, like every bank in the country, everybody has a number in their bank accounts. Right. And if everybody actually tried to take that money out, it would not be there. Correct. We just live our lives happily pretending like this is not the case. Sure. Some um, of us live our lives unhappily knowing it's not the case. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. For sure. For sure. So, so, so when the stock market crashes and people are spooked about the fact that like the thing they thought was worth a lot of money isn't worth a lot of money, mm-hmm. people start going to the banks to get their money out. And predictably, this is a problem because even like in the best of times, it was never all really there at the same time. Okay. And when they go to get it out, it's definitely not there. So there are four waves of bank runs in the middle of this huge economic crisis. Based on what you just told me, that's not good. It's not good at all. They need more crystals. Yeah, they do. <laughs> that is the problem. Uh, have to help them out. Too much moldavite in that town. Bonk. <laughs> <laughs> so FDR comes into office and almost immediately basically says, we're going to shut down all the banks for a weekend. Just uh, one weekend. Well, like it's like a weekend or a week. It's like sure. a big national bank holiday. Everybody simultaneously. Got it. And he's like, okay, everybody, calm the fuck down. We're going to go in and check and make sure these banks are quote unquote solvent. Right? Mm-hmm. To be clear, they can check for solvency all they want, but fundamentally the money's not going to be there. What they're really worried about is that if you have an IOU from somebody that mm-hmm. says they owe you a hundred bucks and that person is now like bankrupt and out of, you know, any money at all, they're never going to pay you back. Sure. Like that bank really is is never going to get the money that they need to give to people. And so they would be insolvent in that case. Yes. But but essentially, it's the act of having somebody with power in the government say, like, we're going to take care of this. That is just the thing that psychologically calms people down enough so they don't all try to take the money out at once, which then actually prevents the problem of everybody taking the money out all at once. Got it. So he does this. And it calms people's nerves. And it's like this first successful step to like trying to provide some sense of stability. Now, that's just like the crisis of money in the bank. But people are still desperately hurting. Yeah. They're like starving to death. Yes. And so in 1933, at the very beginning of his term, he puts together this unprecedented amount of new legislation that he calls the New Deal. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a very famous term now. And in fact, he passes this stuff so quickly. This is where we get the modern concept of like the first hundred days as a benchmark of what you're going to get done as a president. Oh, wow. Um, it is because he's like, 
in these 100 days, I'm going to get all these things that are going to immediately provide help to people. So this is when he brings legislation to Congress that will start the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the Public Works Administration, which is building like dams and bridges and schools, all these public works. Mm-hmm. He starts the Civil Conservation Corps, which hires 250,000 unemployed young men Whoa. to work on like local rural projects, ditch digging, fence building type stuff. Stick dragging. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, one of the criticisms of this is like a lot of the projects are not actually really helpful for people. Sure. Their, their primary purpose. It's a it's triage. It is triage. It yeah. is trying to get a population that is unemployed and hopeless some semblance of meaningful work. Yeah. And if it's just work and it's not super meaningful, that that does the job in some cases, too. Absolutely. Also starts the Federal Trade Commission here, which has these broad new powers to do things like provide mortgage relief to people. Mm. So millions of families and homeowners basically avoid becoming homeless thanks to the FTC. Right. There are a lot of people who really like these programs. Sure. But at the time, he gets a lot of criticism as well for being a fascist. Now, fascism before Nazi Germany meant something a little different than it implies today. We think of like... The, I mean, Nazi Germany is only like two years away at this point. It's coming. It's coming around the corner. <laughs> him, yeah. It's true. I mean, two years away from us, probably not Nazi Germany, but sure, Nazi Germany in 1933 is real close to yes. FDR. Yes. Um, at the time, though, the, the most known example of fascism is Mussolini in Italy. Essentially, it is talking about state control of society and the economy. And it is true that like basically the federal government takes over the economy in this moment in ways that it has never done before and really has not done since. Right. This criticism is not just coming from conservatives of the right, though. There, there are mm. a lot of left-leaning publications that are super worried that the Civilian Conservation Corps, mm-hmm. which is doing these projects, is actually way too integrated with the military. Yeah. So there is a big military component to this that has people worried like it is bordering on what could become a fascist society because you have essentially a paramilitary force that's starting to develop. Got it. He overcomes these objections and based on the criticism backs down a little bit from some of the more militaristic components of it. Got it. Got it. And so is able to preserve the parts that are providing jobs to, you know, a quarter of a million people despite the political pressure. Wow. Four years in, the well, a little bit less than four years in, the end of his term is approaching. There's still 8 million people unemployed. Whoa. So things are not great. But, but that's 17 million fewer when they're 25 million? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And this is what people see. They see that things are much better than they were at the beginning of his term. And especially they're getting better a lot faster than they were under the Republican administration, who was very much more hands off. Got it. And so he's got this popularity. His biggest challenger for the next presidential term coming up is actually from the left. Mm. So at the time, there was this Louisiana governor named Huey Long. Oh, was there ever. (laughs) Yes. So Huey Long, we have not done an episode on. Um, He's probably not a household name in the way that like, if you've ever lived in Louisiana, he's a household name. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Huey Long was this like incredibly calculating and ambitious politician he started off getting this tiny little office that had to do with, like, railroad commissioner, I think, in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And basically, like, read up the tiny fine print that, like, <laughs> gave him control over, like, some sort of, like, rate setting or, like, scheduling of, of freight routes. Right. And then, like, used it to, like, shut down routes and, like, seize control of this, like, entire economy of the state. And then, like, made all these political allies and catapulted that to, like, bigger and bigger office until he was governor. Uh, he was also incredibly corrupt, just yeah. like like one of the most corrupt politicians. Like set the bar in a state where <laughs> corruption is like a, a professional sport, right? right, right. Um, like he had the most money in his freezer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Bill Jefferson got a run for his money. William Jefferson was a Louisiana politician, for people who don't get that reference, who was literally uh, found by the FBI to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash wrapped in aluminum foil in his freezer yeah. from the bribes he was taking. Yep. Um, so like... Louisiana has a long and distinguished history of corruption, and Huey Long is like the the pinnacle. Yeah, the pace setter. 
But he was also the number one competitor for the presidency this year. Long was actually instrumental in getting Roosevelt the nomination back in 32 for the 33 election. Got it. But he had since become a really big critic of this new deal. Mm. And he was a critic. He was like, this doesn't go far enough, frankly. To stimulate the economy, he was advocating things like more massive federal spending, Mm. but also like more direct wealth redistribution and a wealth tax, which we are now talking about again today based on how insane the wealth inequality in the United States has become. By the way, if, if you I know you probably heard that a lot, but if you haven't seen like a graph of how wealth is distributed in the United States today, there's a really great experiment where people will approach random strangers on the street and ask them to like either draw a picture or a line or something that shows what they think wealth inequality is like in America. Mm-hmm. Like, how much do you think the top 1% have, right, compared to everybody else? And inevitably, people will, like, draw their best guess, even people who are well-informed and follow the news. Sure. And when you see the actual distribution, it is so much worse, so much more concentrated in the top percent and top tenth of a percent yeah. than people can even imagine. So, anyway, wealth tax is one way to address that. Mm-hmm. Proposed by Huey Long, mm-hmm. who sees this kind of inequality even back then, uh, there was huge support for this. Huey Long is probably even more of a fascist, probably in a lot of ways, <laughs> than Roosevelt ever had aspirations to be, and gets a lot of support, has a real populist movement, and huge showman, a lot like Trump in a lot of ways, but much, much, much smarter. Mm. And it looks, Long is, is basically going to win the presidency were he not assassinated in 1935. Yeah, that's what happens. Yes. And so Long is assassinated, um, whole other story in and of itself. But after his assassination, there's no real challenger to Roosevelt anymore. That kind of takes the winds out of the sails of everybody who was trying to do it. And Roosevelt, you know, waltzes into re-election in the second term. Interestingly, even though Huey Long's movement kind of faded... Roosevelt ended up adopting many of his proposals in the second New Deal as part of his second term. So some of the things that we actually think about as very non-controversial pillars of the American social safety net, Mm -hmm. you'll notice weren't in the first New Deal. Things like the Social Security Act, the Works Progress Administration, which is the more famous of like his, you know, New Deal programs. Mm -hmm. The National Labor Relations Board, which establishes right this eight-hour work week and, and time and a half overtime pay, aid to dependent children, all of these things come out of the second New Deal after this quote-unquote extreme you know liberal position gave him a challenge on the left. Got it. They also pass the Wealth Tax Act of 1935. Oh. So just for historical precedent, when we're talking about wealth taxes now, the Wealth Tax Act at the time raised taxes for the highest income earners to something like 75%. Right. Right. It was like confiscation of wealth. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if like that's actually a thing that will work nowadays, given that like people can move countries and move money all around the world. Like you have to have... Sure. They're they're building agreements right now to set corporate tax rates and they have to like get buy-in from everybody in Europe because like otherwise they just move to Ireland and stuff, right? Right. But there's precedent for it and it has been done. In the United States. Sure. And it is all part of this Roosevelt's push to, like, answer the the popular outcry for all this inequality that he's seeing. In 18th century Europe, the uh, wealth tax was also known as the guillotine. <laughs> yes. So I really feel like at some point... We 100% have, tax. We have two choices, yeah. <laughs> it's a full confiscation, confiscation of your head or, like, eh, half your shit. Yes. At the time, though, Roosevelt ran into a problem... That would be very familiar to listeners today in the United States, which mm. is that there was a conservative Supreme Court majority Whoops. that was striking down a lot of his most ambitious policies. So into his second term, he passes the second New Deal. But his main focus domestically in the states is like what to do about the Supreme Court. If you're not familiar with the U.S. Constitution, it says a lot about how you appoint justices to the Supreme Court, which ultimately decides if laws are constitutional or not. Uh, It doesn't say anything about how to get them off the Supreme Court. (laughs) Die. Yeah. I mean, like that was the expectation, right? People had a lot shorter life expectancies back in, you know, 1776, 1780 something. Right. People were starting to live a lot longer. Mm -hmm. 
And at first there had been things like they didn't want to retire because like they only got paid. And if you were 70 and left, like you stopped getting paid. And so they set up pensions for the Supreme Court and they were trying to like encourage them. But like at the time, he has six justices who are over 70 years old as part of this conservative majority. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like old dudes, old, old white dudes sitting on this court forever. And he is he is he is pissed. So he starts brainstorming. This problem had started in his first term, but it, it really compounded when he tries to pass the second, more progressive package. Sure. And he is trying to get creative with how to address it. So he proposes the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937, which essentially says that any time a Supreme Court justice hits 70 and doesn't retire... He just gets to appoint one new additional justice to the Supreme Court. Oh my gosh. <laughs> he doesn't get rid of them. Sure. But he's he just, just like, changes the proportion of power. Yeah. And it just so happens mm-hmm. that when, when if this were to pass, he, he gets six new He would get to immediately <laughs> appoint six new justices. <laughs> what do you know? Checkmate. Yes. So during the like election last year in the States, we were talking about court packing and like how do you address this fact? Because frankly, like the abuses with Supreme Court nominations under Obama and Trump have just gotten and, and frankly, Mitch McConnell have gotten to this yeah. ridiculous undemocratic point. So right now, you know, Obama was was not allowed to appoint a justice at the end of his term. But the Republicans let Trump do it. The last the majority of the Supreme Court justices right now that are conservative were made the majority all by presidents who lost the popular vote, mm-hmm. right? Like the Supreme Court is an explicitly undemocratic institution in general, mm-hmm. but it is now represented in a way that reflects the minority of people in the states. Yes. So we're talking about court packing, but the Supreme Court's numbers have been adjusted like six times already by 1937. Like this is not a new idea. Started with like three, right? Yeah. And yeah. so and so they've generally stuck to odd numbers, which is smart, mm-hmm. but um, it is not a radical concept to change the size of the Supreme Court. So Roosevelt's like, I got this. Easy easy peasy, right? (laughs) It turns out, though, if your plan is like, there's nine people and I'm going to add six more tomorrow. Right. People are like, that's that's a lot. They notice. They notice. Because like the Supreme Court, even though it is like the ultimate decider of these complicated political and constitutional problems, Mm -hmm. it is fundamentally only powerful because people believe in it. Yes. Right. It has no power to enforce its decisions. And so you have to come up with something that people will buy into. So it turns out the problem that Roosevelt ends up having is that this plan is a step too far, not just for the conservatives, but for people in his own party. They're just like, there's no way. It's not going to fly. Massive overreach. Yeah. It fails. Ultimately, by the very end of his terms, he will end up with a majority because these dudes are all over 70 <laughs> sure, sure. and without expanding the size of the court. Mm-hmm. But at that point, most of the things that he's tried to pass have either been like knocked down or like he doesn't end up actually getting what he wants, which is like the ability to do radically different things. Sure. Um, he He's just going to, it's going to happen as a natural consequence. As he is trying to decide which policies to prioritize and which ones not to, we we start to come upon his record on civil rights. Something tells me it's not going to be great. Backdrop here is that he is, Roosevelt, mm-hmm. is incredibly popular with non-white voters. Okay. Well, I'll say he's popular with most non-white voters. Okay. We'll get to some exceptions soon. But he was viewed as a hero by most black Americans uh, because he was really successful in getting a lot of them into this New Deal coalition. Like the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps was particularly helpful for rural black Americans. Mm. And Native Americans fared really well under his uh, Indian Reorganization Act at the time. Okay. So he was able to build some of these coalitions in. He had essentially the WPA was, was an economic floor for the whole black community for the very first time, really, in American history. Up until now, a lot of it had been state by state and the southern states were still like very much in the Jim Crow South. Yes. And so he was able to provide a lot of direct economic support in ways that federal programs had never done before. 
at the same time, the NAACP was like, hey, appreciate the economic relief. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of lynching going on. Yeah, let's stop that. Yeah, how about we stop that? Mm-hmm. And so they took what I would consider the fairly non-controversial position that lynching was bad, said, hey, we have this anti-lynching legislation that would go a long way to not just making sure people have food and homes but also aren't killed. Could you also maybe support that? Yeah, and uh, if, clearly. Right? And FDR's like, you know, that feels like a bridge too far. What? Yeah, he drew the line at anything that actually got to the safety and protection of black Americans as a as a protected class of people. Jesus. Didn't Rand Paul also recently just vote against like the last oh. anti-lynching bill? Yeah, I think there's I like heard... one state like Kentucky, right? Yeah, something like that. Where it's like, like not that. codified into law and Rand Paul was like, "No, that infringes on my civil liberties." Yeah. Yeah. It sadly not a tradition that has faded with time. Ugh. You would hope that he would be able to like make some progress. Eleanor Roosevelt mm-hmm. was like part of an NAACP like informal cabinet. At this time, like he does not do anything like appoint, you know, black Americans to his cabinet or administration or anything like that. He invites some prominent black thinkers and activists to dinner once, but the pushback happens. And so he never does it again. Right. He's oh. like very convenient political support from black Americans and minority communities, but definitely not not willing to go the step to like make any Southern politicians uncomfortable, right? Like that's where he draws the line. Mm. Like as long as white Southern politicians are generally seeing this as like overall help for everybody mm-hmm. and they don't have to actually look at any of the real sure. violence that is happening then he's okay. But it, as soon as you start to make those those guys mad, he's like, eh, no yeah. thanks. White Southern politicians in the vein of Lyndon B. Johnson. Like yes. the good old yes. boys, but still like they want the economic prosperity that benefits them, but also the maintenance of oppression and power that also benefits them. Yes. And this is bad enough as it is for the lack of support and recognition that it provides. Mm. But... In 1939, World War II starts. It sure does. In Europe, not not involving the U.S. yet. Not yet. And this is where FDR's uh, bigotry and racism, frankly, like go from being a causing a lack of action on things that would be really important and helpful to actively causing incredible harm to hundreds of thousands of people. We've got to be getting to the end of his presidency, right? He's elected in 32. We're coming up on 40, like, curtains for him, right? Buckle the fuck up. What? You are absolutely correct. Math the, checks out. The math checks out. The end of his second term is approaching. And obviously it would be unconstitutional for him to run for a third term. Is it in the Constitution at that point? It is now. Oh. <laughs> but so what? what you're alluding to is the fact that Presidents can only serve two terms. Now. Now. Uh-huh. And up until now, so from the beginning of America, 1776 or whenever, mm-hmm. I guess whenever the first constitution was passed, which was after that, so 1780s, up until the 1940s, mm-hmm. there is a tradition that George Washington started, presidents only serve two terms. Yeah. So if you go back to George Washington, he serves his two terms. And there are a lot of people. He had been like the war hero. He'd been the first president. Yeah, they wanted him to keep going. Yeah. In fact, there were people that proposed like there'd be a president for life. Right. And he was like, no, that's essentially a king. Yeah. He's like, no, you idiots. Literally what we just fought. Why did we do this? He's like, no, 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 no. Checks and balances. We have to have an election. Yeah. Yeah. We we want it to be about an office and not a person. Mm -hmm. And so he starts his tradition. And every single president after that, who's popular enough to serve two terms, sees that this is like critical for having a healthy democracy Mm -hmm. and a society that is not fascist (laughs) and declines to run for a third term. Yeah. And I think we've all seen what happens, like the age progression of presidents over two terms. It's not good. Like by the end of eight years in that position. It's fucking rough. Most folks are like, 
I don't want to do this anymore. Please help me out. Yes. And then you have like, quote unquote, you know, elected officials who are actually dictators in places like Turkey with Erdogan and Putin in Russia. Sure. Where like they will manipulate their constitution. They will have to they, they will maybe maybe start off as like elected in some sort of election that like has some semblance of legitimacy. But then by the time you stay in for two or three terms, you start to be able to build a system where like you arrest political opponents, you start to like throw people in jail, you start to like rig stuff where like you just stay in from that point. Literally, he's now Putin's now president for life at this stage. Right. Um, Explicitly allow like modified all the constitution for Mm -hmm. them. So like, yes, it is a road to dictatorship. And FDR is like, so I hear what you're saying. Yeah, that's my road. I'll take <laughs> it. I'll take it. Let's do it. What? And so, yeah, he, in 1940, at the DNC convention, people don't really know. And he's like, yep, I'm running for a third term, motherfuckers. Oh. Yeah. Now, granted, he has done enough with direct redistribution of wealth where he has the popular support. Sure. And I don't want to, like, shit all over that. But that is the kind of thing that can get you the power to potentially entrench yourself and abuse that power. Yeah, it's like the gerrymandering of the day. Yes, and he is totally willing to do it. So he runs and wins re-election in 1941. Wow, and I did not realize this. third term as president. No way. August of 39, right b- before this election happens, mm-hmm. there was a letter that we talked about a little bit in the Einstein episode that comes from Albert Einstein to FDR. Mm-hmm. It was written by, oh, I don't know how to say this name, Sizzlard or Slizlard. It's S-Z-I-L-A-R-D, Slylard, maybe. Slylard Einstein letter is okay. how people refer to it. And it was a letter to Roosevelt. And they were like, hey, President Roosevelt, there's this war starting in Europe. Mm-hmm. And on an unrelated note, we just figured out that you could split an atom <laughs> and release a lot of energy. Yeah. Just so you know, mm-hmm. that might not always just be useful for power plants. Sure. If you took the same thing that's going on inside of like a power plant and just did it like on the street somewhere, that would be a bomb. <laughs> and <laughs> like the, the same calculation of math where you're like, okay, so if you were doing this inside a pharmaceutical lab, this would be called uh, Ritalin or mm-hmm. um, Adderall. But if you do it in your bathtub. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> It's methamphetamine. Turns out not as great. No. So they write this letter and they're like, we're pretty sure this wild-eyed Hitler guy mm-hmm. knows this too. Uh-uh. Or he'll figure it out real fucking soon. Yeah. It would it would probably be bad if like he can do that and we can't. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt, at the end of his second term, understands like that. Yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> so he signs off on like the very initial preliminary research into nuclear weapons. Okay. After FDR is elected and takes office in 1941 for the third term, on December 7th, 1941, there's a day that will live in infamy, as he says in one of his speeches. Yeah. Pearl Harbor. Indeed. Japanese sneak attack and bomb the naval naval base in Pearl Harbor. And America can no longer, like, debate about whether it's getting involved in World War II. It's like, all right, we're in. Let's do it. Yeah, before that, keeping an eye on the imperialism, but okay with it from yeah. afar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just keep but, a pulse on it. Yeah, right. There's debates about whether you just, like, get involved at all. Mm-hmm. You just had World War One, which is a whole shit show that, like, started for no fucking reason really at all, except, like, getting entangled in this European stuff. And then it was a nightmare, trench warfare. People don't want to go to war again. No. So there's, like, they let Hitler get away with annexing Poland and shit for a long time. Sure did. But... Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and states is like, all right, we're fucking going to war. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Roosevelt, seeing this, picks up the phone and calls the people that are doing this preliminary research. And he's like, hey, um, we're going to pick up the pace. <laughs> <laughs> so that is when he secures the funding for what becomes known as the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. Very explicitly focused on being the first country to develop nuclear weapons. Churchill and Roosevelt agree to partner up and do this jointly. And Roosevelt assures that, like, they're cooperating. So Churchill, awful and racist for all of his own reasons that you go listen to in the Churchill episode. Episode 7. Really great. Episode, not person. Yeah, yeah. To be clear. I am not going to 
uh, try to put myself in a position where I'm having to make a moral calculus like this. We talked about this for Einstein episode as well. But one thing to be clear on is that like the geopolitical order as it is today, right, where America is both an economic and military superpower, right, Mm -hmm. really starts at the conclusion of World War II. Yes. And the conclusion of World War II comes around about because the U.S. has the atomic bombs. Mm -hmm. And specifically because they have developed the bombs under FDR's leadership, will use these things to drop them on civilian populations, right? Yeah. The, yeah. the, the plan ultimately is usually in war, you have combatants and non-combatants. Mm-hmm. And you're going to say, we are going to make a distinction. People in uniform are fair game. Non-combatants are not. Yes. But this ultimately ends the war because the, the states are willing to use this bomb that FDR funds and develops and just say, I'll bet if we kill enough civilians mm-hmm. simultaneously, mm-hmm. we can make them quit. Yeah. And it works, right? Yeah. Like, like something that in every other context is just considered a straight up black and white textbook war crime. Yeah. Is immediately effective. And celebrated. And celebrated, mm-hmm. right? There is very little consideration, I think, now after the fact given to the idea that, like, yes, we had them. But the way, not only the way the U.S. used them, but, like, then the future threat of their use after that. Yeah. Like, there were a lot of ways you could use a nuclear weapon. The nuclear weapons at the time were, were actually nothing compared to the nuclear weapons we have now. It of is, course. It, of is, course. it is unsettling if you dig into, like, how massive these weapons are today. Yeah. Life ending on Earth, right? Oh, for sure. We could, we, could, we could destroy the habitability of Earth many times over with the weapons we have today. But these bombs at the time, even though they were the biggest ever did not have to be used on civilian populations, right? There were a lot of alternative targets you could have done. Absolutely. There were a lot of things. But the U.S. is like, you know know what? We're going to drop it in the middle of a city center, not once, but twice. Yeah. And as effective as it is, we kind of live with the implications of that to this very day. Now, you may be thinking, man, I can't imagine putting myself in a position where I make the call to drop these bombs like this. And to be fair... Roosevelt is not directly responsible for that decision. But if you are trying to put yourself in his shoes, I think one thing that like makes the run-up to the development of this moment easier to understand is just how incredibly racist against Asian people FDR is. Mm. As you may or may not know, in February of 1942, just a few months after the December Pearl Harbor bombing, yes. FDR signs Executive Order... 9066 establishes, quote, military areas for anyone of Japanese ancestry in the United States. So now, some real fascist shit. Yeah. Not so, like social security fascist, like fascist fascist. Like real fucking fascist. Like if yeah. there were if there were earlier inclinations, like this criticism on the left that like, oh, you're setting up this like economic program and it's like got some like really like suspicious ties to the military and like a real fascistic bent to it and he's like oh no we're just doing military stuff no like now we're talking about like rounding people up and putting them in camps Mm -hmm. after this bombing yeah which is what we're literally fighting against in Europe literally what we're fighting against yeah and to be clear when it says anyone of Japanese ancestry two thirds of the people that are put in these camps 70,000 people are American citizens. Yes. American citizens with like every protection under the Bill of Rights and the Constitution that you can imagine. On paper, every protection that you, American listener, think you have under the law mm-hmm. and the freedoms of this country. And they're like, eh, we don't really trust you because we're racist. You're going to concentration camps. Yep. Rebranded. Yes. Internment. Rebranded to internment camps. But... Concentration camps. Yeah, concentration camps. To be clear, they are not concentration camps that result in the mass genocide of people like the Nazi camps do. No. Right? So, like, there is a a big line there, right? There are not millions of people who are murdered systematically in the United States. I think it's also worth pointing out, though, that the concentration camps in Germany did not start with mass murder either, right? Right. But there is a shared justification. 
Now, I can almost feel a reflex because I, I've recognized this in myself, and I'm sure other people have experienced it too, to say like, okay, when somebody does something like this that is hugely, massively, systemically racist, they're working not just with their own prejudices and like personal failings, but also there's some sense that like in a hard situation where you've just been bombed by another country, maybe you don't understand if there's a real threat and in that uncertainty, that could be used to justify some really horrific things. The fact of the matter is, though, that there is not just massive evidence now, but massive evidence at the time that there is no justification for what happens right? except for racism. So a couple examples. 40% of the population of Hawaii meets the definition that would get you interned. And they realize, like, if we put 40% of people in Hawaii. In, in Hawaii into these camps, not only, like, can we not manage this logistically, Yeah, we have no one to, like, run anything in the economy or the war effort or anything else. And so for Hawaii, which is the closest state to Japan, I might add, mm-hmm. they don't put most of these people in any camps. 37,000 of them just stay out and everything's fine. In an unfortunate parallel to a lot of the recent violent attacks on Asian Americans in the United States that like came out of COVID. At the time, there had been decades of history of prejudice and racially motivated violence against Asians and Asian Americans in the United States. Yeah. There were, there were laws at the time preventing Asian Americans from owning land. Oh, wow. From voting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they could not, uh, Asian Americans could not testify against whites in court in some places. Wow. Yeah. And you're talking about Americans, like American American citizens of of Asian Asian descent. descent. Yes, right? Wow. Similar to black American citizens, right? Who are are like Americans. Absolutely. Yeah, similar systemic prejudice and racism. Because of that, in 1940, before Pearl Harbor, there had been investigations by naval intelligence about whether, after Japanese forces joined the Axis powers in World War II, whether there was an organized threat posed by people of Japanese ancestry in the States, mm-hmm. right? So naval intelligence, before Pearl Harbor goes, does this investigation preemptively based on this existing you know, history of fear and prejudice, mm-hmm. finds that there is no threat sure, and explicitly urges against mass incarceration. It says this would be a bad idea, not just politically, but militarily there's no justification. There's no security justification. So the information going into this is that there is no reason to do it. 1941, Pearl Harbor has still not happened yet, but preemptively, FDR commissions a second study to figure out if there's a real possibility of any security threat from Asian Americans or Japanese Americans specifically. In that report, which he got back one month before Pearl Harbor happened, found that, quote, there will be no armed uprising of Japanese people in the United States. And, quote, for the most part, the local Japanese people are loyal to the United States or, at worst, hope that by remaining quiet, they can avoid concentration camps or irresponsible mobs. At worst. Yes. Yikes. FDR gets not one, but two reports back Mm -hmm. from the naval intelligence and a special presidential investigation, finds that there is absolutely no reason to justify this. Pearl Harbor happens, and like 60 days later, he's like, hey, business owners, families, school children, guess what? You're getting rounded up out of your homes. You're getting put in barbed wire in the middle of the desert, and you are going to stay there. People lost decades of wealth that they built up. They lost their jobs. They lost businesses. There, there were not enough services provided. People ended up having to like form schools and mm-hmm. medical services in, inside the camps themselves because like these things were not provided by the military. No, they were. it was a prison. Yes, it was a prison. Propagandized. All the pictures that were sent out, Yeah. Uh, strategically, all the pictures the military and government sent out of these took them inside of the barbed wire so you could not see all of the prison elements. Yeah. Right? They showed them looking like they were just like little temporary towns. No, these these were straight up prisons. And it was just explicitly in every way unconstitutional. By December 44, Mm -hmm. Roosevelt has to roll this back because he's forced to by the Supreme Court. 
people were released uh, often to like resettlement places in, in temporary housing because like if you had a mortgage or a yeah it was taken apartment, taken back it, it was all just taken right yeah. imagine being rounded up right like you lose everything unconstitutionally lose your job lose everything a few years later three years later right I guess two years later two and a half they say oh yeah yeah our bad and then they like drop you off at this temporary place and now you are starting from scratch right I mean this is what happens right. In the years afterwards, Japanese Americans basically have to rebuild their lives. Because they lost everything, they were put back decades in terms of like being able to establish lives in the United States and generations of wealth. Even after they were released, there stayed laws in the books that said if you were a Japanese American, you could not become an American citizen if you weren't already one, all the way up through the 50s. Wow. And to be clear, these opinions that like this was totally unnecessary and unconstitutional and should never have happened are not just like my personal musings. The federal government, decades later, starting in the 80s, did in-depth investigations of this as well. And the government's official position on this was that even at the time, quote, the incarceration was based on race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership, end quote. And so the commission recommended that the government apologized, which it did, mm-hmm. and then made reparations to the people who were surviving of $20,000 each, which is nowhere near anything resembling justification. Yeah. And, you know, America has a great history with reparations and no. following through and implementing. Well, no, but but to be clear, right, what this shows is that, like, in this particular limited case mm-hmm. for Asian and specifically Japanese Americans mostly, They were able to do it. They were able to do it, right? Like, they came to the realization that, like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything was telling us not to do this. There was no good reason to. It was a bad idea. We did it anyway. Uh, Our bad. And then they paid a couple grand. They paid a couple grand, right? So, again, does not at all make up for any of this. But the fact that, like, there was even a push to do it shows that, like, it is a feasible, responsible thing to do in Mm -hmm. the face of, like, clear evidence of systemic oppression Yep, and absolutely not unprecedented when we start to talk about other marginalized groups like, say, black Americans who were brought in for generations and generations of slavery in the yeah. United States. Yeah. Sadly, though, the opposition to anti-lynching legislation and even the internment of tens of thousands of American citizens are not the worst things that FDR did because he was racist. Uh, ooh, that, those, high bar. Yes. (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. That seems impossible. Yes. It turns out that as this rounding up was happening, Mm -hmm. Japan was in the Axis powers, but so were Italy and Mussolini. Sure. And Hitler and Germany. Uh Uh-huh. And so there were also Italian and German Americans who were targeted by these policies and rounded up and put into camps. Mm-hmm. 11,000 people of German ancestry were interned. 3,000 people of Italian ancestry. Okay. And some Jewish refugees from Germany. Oh, no. The U.S. government did not differentiate between anybody who was Jewish, whether it was like a practice religiously for them or just like in their family line. And so there are people who came from Germany, Mm -hmm. Jews who came from Germany to escape Nazi fascism and potential concentration camps, only to be placed in concentration camps in the United States. Yikes. They were not killed in those concentration camps. This was indicative of a long history of anti-Semitism that FDR showed going back all the way to the earliest parts of his adult life. Mm. In 1923, uh, when he was a member of the Harvard Board of Directors, Roosevelt... (laughs) What? Yeah, so... Okay, we'll skip over that part. Money. Right. Money. Rich, money, family connections. Had, right, gone to school just like... Money. Money, money, money. Uh Uh-huh. Roosevelt had decided that there were too many Jewish students at the college. What? So he was instrumental in implementing the very first quota that limited the maximum amount of Jewish students that would be allowed to Harvard. What? Qualified candidates turned away because 
Sorry, we have too many Jews. Oh, my gosh. In 1938, before World War II starts, right? Mm -hmm. In line with the propaganda that Hitler is spreading, FDR is privately suggesting that Jews in Poland were dominating the economy and they were the ones to blame for provoking anti-Semitism there. What? Yeah, in 41, after the war starts, he says in a cabinet meeting that there were too many Jews as federal employees. He's still complaining that in the United States, all of the same tropes that Hitler is spewing are, you know, pretty much right here in the States as well. Oh, my gosh. 43, he tells government officials in North Africa, which had been liberated by the Allies from Mm -hmm. under Hitler, Mm -hmm. that the number of Jews in various professions, now that they'd, like, liberated them from Germany, should definitely be limited still, though. And he... He wanted to try to, quote, eliminate the specific and understandable complaints that the Germans bore towards the Jews in Germany. So he's like, you know, Hitler, you're free. We've liberated you, but he kind of had a point. So could you just get rid of some of the Jews that are in in jobs right now? I mean, it's a real, like, wearing a short skirt, bringing it on yourself argument. Yeah. And he's like, well, hey, if y'all could just be a little less slutty, then we wouldn't have war. Yeah, right? Like, he is he is basically oh making gosh. the case that it is Jewish people's fault for Jesus. the things that Hitler is starting to do even after World War II starts. Privately... Is he saying any of this, like, to the public? Or is this all just, like, archived? So this is archived in, like, again, sure. government cabinet meetings yeah. and, like, diplomatic visits and things. But there are letters that say what he was saying in private Ugh. to, like, friendly acquaintances as well. And even after the war starts... And Hitler has begun really interning and putting Jews into concentration camps. He is on the record dismissing pleas for Jewish refugees as, quote, Jewish wailing. Oh, my God. And, quote, sob stuff. Uh, yeah. Telling one senator it was a pride of his that there is, quote, no Jewish blood in our veins, said that uh, certain tax maneuvers by Jewish companies were, quote, dirty Jewish tricks. Yeah, spending a lot of time with Churchill. Oh, man. Like, they were they were Coco Chanel. on the same page, right? Like, this anti-Semitism, even though it was taken to, like, horrific and much more extreme ends in Nazi Germany, right. is, like, rampant through all of the systems of power in the United States at the same time as well. And there's a paper trail. Yes. And, and the most common thing that FDR says in his private statements about Jews— is that there is this perception, like he said in, in the African government, that there is, quote, overcrowding and that Jewish people were exerting undue influence. And so this is actually fundamentally the justica- justification for probably the very worst thing he did in his leadership of World War II. He turns away refugees, right? Yes. Makes them go back. Exactly. In 1943... FDR is talking with Winston Churchill, and he offers up to Churchill his uh, ideas for, quote, the best way to settle the Jewish question. And his plan is to, quote, spread the Jews thin all over the world. There's a diary entry from somebody who's there that adds, quote, the president said he had tried this out in Meriwether County, Georgia, where Roosevelt had lived in the 20s when he bought his hot spring. Right. And at Hyde Park in New York, where he lived, on the basis of adding four or five Jewish families at each place. And he claimed that, you know, the local population would have no objection if there were no more than that. And and so his plan is to essentially just, like, try to spread people thin, break up communities if you need to, but just, like, avoid the inconvenience or, like, uncomfortability of the white folks so that they wouldn't have to see too many Jewish people in one place. I don't even... How? How and why, right? How would you do that? I mean, why racism? Yes, yes, yes. And being horrible. How, again, you're then talking about, like, a fascist system of confinement. Yes, (laughs) you you are again talking about a fascist government system to spread... A minority group, or to like to minoritize, minoritize a a your a fascist system to spread a group of people to places they don't want to be, right? To remove them from the lives and the worlds they know. Again, not because you have any actual like mm. 
reasons, but because you are racist and it makes you uncomfortable. This comes to a head when the atrocities of Nazi Germany are plain for anyone who is living there to see. Mm -hmm. And German Jews start leaving and applying for asylum in the United States. So there is a quota in, in law at the time that says that the administration can let up to 100,000 people into the United States from Germany. Okay. And so as these people are fleeing Hitler, Roosevelt, pulling on this deeply held belief that you don't really want too many Jewish people in one place, limits the amount that are actually taken to about 25,000. Whoa. So 75,000 people are denied for basically like imaginary made-up reasons from coming to the United States. Oh, no. And that's after they've like been on a boat, gotten to America, and then turned away? Yeah. There's horrific stories of like whole boatloads of people who like pull up to the ports yeah. in New York. And then like... Who are fleeing Nazi Germany and who are never let off the boat and just like turn back around. Mm-hmm. And the reasons are like just horrible. So, for example, if starting in 41, if you simply had a close relative who was still in Europe and didn't come on the boat with you, that would disqualify you. Because it was this absurd like assumption that uh, the Nazis would threaten that person and then you could be forced to be a spy for Hitler, right? Like if you tried to make it out and you couldn't, and, and you, mm. for some like heart-wrenching reason, you couldn't get somebody in your family out, yeah, they would turn everyone else in your family away. If FDR had simply told the State Department. And he, and he didn't have to make a big deal out of it, right? He could have done it privately. He could have just done it as a matter of policy. He didn't have to make it a public announcement even. Mm-hmm. If it was about like other people's racism and their perceptions, he could have done it in a way that wasn't as visible. But if he had just told the State Department, which was administering this immigration system, to fill the quotas for Germany and other like Axis-occupied countries mm-hmm. to the legal limit that was already written, yep. no changes from Congress needed, he could have saved about... 200,000 lives from Hitler. And instead, those people, in many cases, like made it all the way across the Atlantic to safety on the shores of the United States and were turned away and sent back to death camps. So, yeah, I think it's easy to lose track of the fact that, like, when we visit these people from history. Yeah especially people in power, and we talk about their personal bigotry and racism. Like, there's one sense in which we talk about it, it's like, oh, this person that we think of, like, the good things for readily, social security system, oh, they were, like, a racist too, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, like, marks in their in their column that, like, you know, make them less of an unqualified hero. I think it is really important to look at the fact that when people in power are bigoted, it is not, like, a personal racist thing, yeah. It is that they then bend the systems. They institutionalize it. Yes, to to their prejudices and bigotry. Mm-hmm. Right? The institutionalization of that has incredibly massive implications that are literally life and death for hundreds of thousands of people. We still live with many of those systems to this very day. 100%. And I say we. People of color and non-white people, right? People who are not in the majority of power live with it to this day in ways that like still shape generations and generations of lived experience yeah that that are it's not just an abstract concept it is literal day-to-day experience of oppression yeah and um representation or lack absence of like just not when you when you know like when you mentioned you know he could have saved 200,000 lives or impacted hundreds of thousands. We think about that as like a concrete, short-term, direct impact of something that he did, right? But here we are, I don't know, 90 years later, and we're still experiencing the same sort of anti-Asian hate. Mm-hmm. We still see hate crimes against other people of color. Like, there were opportunities to build a system that didn't automatically perpetuate mistrust in specific races or identities that didn't villainize or oppress in in all of these ways. So, yeah, there's a like short-term consequence, but 
for a lot of people, it's still a day-to-day reality. Absolutely. This brings us to 1944. And while some Democrats had opposed his nomination back in 40 because he was breaching this, like, sacred tenant mm-hmm. of Democratic tradition, he, he really had very little opposition. Like, what's, again, once you've gone for three... What's the big deal with four, right? He goes for four? He goes for four. No. And nobody opposes him, right? Nobody in in the party opposes him. It's not like he has challengers from the left or anything. Like, again, once you shatter this norm, like, well, why not? U.S. is at war still. um, And so he gets the nomination. Uh, The Republicans nominate Thomas Dewey, who is the governor of New York, like Roosevelt had been back in the day. Mm -hmm. Dewey was kind of a, like, more liberal Republican because that's kind of where the political pendulum was. Sure. Um, and as we've learned in this episode, liberal is a fluid definition. <laughs> yes. And uh, liberal comparatively. We would, yeah, we would not consider most of the things that Roosevelt did uh, at the time as liberal now. Oh, absolutely. Not. Anything's like moderate to fascist. But all right. Yeah. Right. Like liberal in a, in a lot of economic senses, but in terms of like personal liberties, like incredibly fascist. Yeah. Right. And like that's that's one of the big distinctions. So. There's Dewey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'd accused FDR of all kinds of things, corruption, bureaucratic inefficiency, uh, tolerating communism, military blunders. But basically labor unions, which had grown rapidly during the war, especially and like thrived under the National Labor Relations Board, fully supported Roosevelt. And Roosevelt wins with a comfortable margin, 53 percent of the popular vote for his fourth presidential term. Wow. Yes. Only person in American history to ever be elected over twice, but four times as well. The war is in its final stages, but it's still going on. Roosevelt's health is not great. This whole time, he was paralyzed from his earlier illness, mm-hmm. Guillain-Barre, which they thought was polio. But he was never photographed in a wheelchair. It was never clear. In fact, there's only like one historical photograph that shows FDR in a wheelchair, like not, like obviously. And so people really didn't have any sense of where his health was. But he goes to rest at his Warm Springs, Georgia retreat that he bought his spa. Got it. He's getting ready for his appearance at the founding of the United Nations, which they are starting as part of this like post-war world order. Yes. In the afternoon of April 12, 1945, He's sitting for a portrait, and he says, man, I have a terrific headache, and then slumps forward in the chair and is brought immediately to a doctor. Of course. Massive brain hemorrhage, and later that day, FDR dies at the age of 63. I somehow did not know that he died in office. Yeah. So he I feel like I know nothing about his in office. post-war presidency. I mean, it's very short, obviously, but I- yeah. And it's not his, even his story. His narrative is so limited. Yeah, it's it's not even technically post-war. So one of the reasons I was trying to give the provisos earlier is Get that it. after he dies, Truman takes over. And that's, I mean, he's the one who dropped the bomb. He's yeah. the one who drops the bomb, right? Yeah, he, he dies into the fourth presidential term. Wow. And the most shocking thing is that like nobody in the public, because they didn't know he was sick, like for everybody in the country, it's just out of the blue, Ooh. right? It's just like, oh, president, he's dead now. <laughs> um, and so it's shock across the world. Germany surrenders, actually, during the 30-day period of mourning after he dies. Wow. So he never lives to see the end of the war. Again, Truman takes over. It becomes a whole thing. Truman, you know, anyway. We'll get to him eventually. We'll get to him eventually. Yeah. Yes. So the rapid expansion of government programs that happened in his term really mm-hmm. redefined the role of the government in the United States. It was instrumental, frankly, in redefining what progressive and liberal politics look like for generations. We kind of live in the shadow of this because it was functionally the only help that so many people had during one of the worst economic crises in in the nation's history. Um, And he definitely established the U.S. leadership on the world stage. Even though he didn't live to see it, there was the U.N., there was the Bretton Woods Financial Agreements, like they, they, he developed the weapons that won the war. And definitely shaped the entire world geopolitical structure. He created, frankly, a new understanding of what the presidency was, right? He, he permanently increased the amount of power that 
a president had and took that power away from Congress and like other elected representatives Mm -hmm. for better or worse. Yeah. Real hit or miss there. So much so that, you know, 10 years after he's elected to a certain term, they end up just like passing a constitutional amendment so that nobody fucking pulls that shit again. (laughs) Uh, They're like, nope, that's that's enough for us. Start packing in your seventh year. You're done. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Because of all that, but also because he was just this extremely opportunistic political operator mm-hmm. who personally was kind of a sleaze, mm-hmm. but also somebody whose personal racism and bigotry not just undermined his most important programs, but also like actively led to the radically unconstitutional oppression of American citizens and very directly to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of refugees from Hitler. And for the fact that just... <laughs> just keeps going. <laughs> I'm sure he was a shitty little kid because there's no way you are a trust fund baby and not a douchebag. Little punk. For all of those reasons, I would say FDR is most certainly not my hero. Not my hero either. And you were not kidding when you said this was a big episode. Yeah, can you imagine we tried to do this in one? No. I'm uh, looking at the clock right now and upset about how much I'm going to have to edit (laughs) this one already. So we're going to wrap this up right now. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Well, uh, as you are working tirelessly uh, until the next episode, if people really want more Meet Your Heroes in their lives, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.